Hello, you are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Live in the Studio is a monthly talks program recorded in front of a live studio audience. Chairing this evening, uh, we have the sci-fi show's Oscar Hillstrom. Um, And joining Oscar, we have producer, programmer and blogger, Madeline Palmer, writer and broadcaster, Richard Watts, uh, radio presenter and pop culture expert, Paul Verhoeven, and comedian and all-round media personality, Adam Richards. Richard. Uh, But before I hand over to Oscar, uh, I'd just sort of like to take a couple of minutes to get you all in the Who mood. Um, So we've just got a quick clip that will take you through the past doctors um, and their companions for a little bit. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Doctor Who in his entirety, or is it his entirety? Its entirety. Um, It's an extraordinary adventure um, that I think everybody in this room can share passionately with each other and with people who've never heard of it. Um, Doctor Who is the longest-running sci-fi series in history, Um, outbeating, obviously, Stargate that some people talk about, but we're not not here to talk about Stargate. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) We're here to talk about, um, well, an icon. And the most interesting part of that icon is that so many actors have played him at different parts of his life cycle and getting to the point which is who is the very best. Now, you can say that um, everybody grew up with a particular doctor and whatever doctor you were... Whatever doctor you saw at the age of seven, uh, perhaps at 5.30 on a weekday afternoon, that is your particular doctor. Or perhaps if you're just coming to the Doctor Who experience, then you only have to choose from the ones that you've seen since 2005 and then all this other stuff is a relevant balderdash from old people who seem to like (laughs) science fiction with cardboard and, and whisks and plunges and stuff like that. It's very, very strange. But... I want to address the entire spectrum of Doctor Who fans. So if you're new to Doctor Who, please forgive us if we get a little bit too particular. But if you love all of Doctor Who, I'm here to tell you that this panel before you tonight know more about Doctor Who than I do, and which is a terrifying thought. Um, but at the same time, they love it just as much as I do. And I think that's one of the gorgeous things about Doctor Who is that if you do love it, there's always somebody to talk to about it and with equal passion. So, without further ado, I will tell you that the most popular Doctor Who of all time is none other than Tom Baker. Now, I say that not because he was my favourite Doctor, but because in 1974 his ratings were 19 million, which in modern terms is phenomenal because I'm just talking about the UK ratings. Now, um, if you take, for example, David Tennant's most popular uh, Christmas special, which hit 12 million, that's 7 million less. I know I'm not very good at math, but at the same time, I can figure that one out. Um, so, definitively speaking, the most popular Doctor Who of all time is Tom Baker. However, that said, um, is he the best? Is he the best for people who grew up with him? Yes, but at the same time, if you're, you know, born in the 90s, uh, you might prefer Matt Smith or David Tennant or even Christopher Eccleston. You may even prefer Sylvester McCoy, which provokes a lot of, I guess, a lot of people (laughs) who either love him or love to hate him. Um, Was he the Doctor Who killed the franchise? 
No, he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's settled now. Exactly. Well, we can go home. Yes. Um, now, I will, I will say that everybody on this panel has their particular doctor, but while we're talking about that and who is the particular doctor that they enjoy the most, is it the doctor that they grew up with? Um, and is it something, perhaps, that we can take beyond that doctor that you feel nostalgia for? So, without further ado, I'm going to throw over to Maddie Palmer. Um, Maddie is a devout Whovian and was just telling me that she enjoys throwing parties for up to 30 fans at a time where they cooked Who-based treats um, <laughs> and enjoy the new experience of Doctor Who. But um, tell us, Maddie, who is the best Doctor uh, I have to say that I, I'm, I actually have had a bit of an opposite journey into Whovianism than a lot of people. Um, I, w I wasn't actually really allowed to watch TV as a kid. Um, so I sort of dipped in and out. By the way, if any of you are considering that as a sort of a disciplinary technique, I now have two degrees in television and work in it. So <laughs> if you're hoping your child will have read Finnegan's Wake by the age of 10, forbidding them from watching TV is not your best option. Um, uh, so I've actually become more obsessed as I got older. I sort of dipped in and out as a kid and now as, you know, as a grown-up, I uh, bake cakes shaped like TARDISes for fun. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, I'm going to talk about Matt Smith tonight. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think uh, I wanted to start by showing a, uh, a clip from The Lodger, which was an episode from uh, the 2010 series. Um, it wasn't the show's introduction to that character, but, but it was one particular character, James Cordell's character, um, introduction to the Doctor. So, Jay, you take it away. <laughs> But I only put the advert up today. I didn't put my address. Well, aren't you lucky I came along? More lucky than you know. Less of a young professional, more of an ancient amateur. But frankly, I'm an absolute dream. Hang on a minute, I don't know if I want you to stay in. Give me back those keys. You can't have those. Yes, quite right. Have some rent. That's probably quite a lot, isn't it? Looks like a lot. Is it not? I can never tell. Spend it all on sweets, unless you like sweets. I like sweets. Ooh. That's how we greet each other nowadays, isn't it? I'm the doctor. Well, they call me the doctor. I don't know why. I call me the doctor too. Still don't know why. <laughs> so one of the things I really love about Smith's doctor is I feel like he's conspicuously more alien than a doctor we've seen in a long time. Um, and an episode like this where he's put into basically like an, an English sitcom really allows that element to sort of thrive. He... Uh, he always looks really uncomfortable on Earth, and I think Matt Smith has this um, physicality of he actually looks kind of uncomfortable in his own body. Stephen Moffat actually said that he um, described him as walking like a drunk giraffe. <laughs> uh, actually, just said there's a Tumblr called Drunk Giraffe, which is all these screen caps of Matt Smith. I actually was trying to find one of the gifts, which is mainly him dancing at the wedding, um, but I couldn't turn it into a clip, so feel free to, feel free mm. to demonstrate at any point. <laughs> I'm not going to, though. Um, so, and he's actually also, they film him to look quite weird, uh, which is really evident in the scene where Tennant regenerates into Smith. It actually looks like his, um, like his cheekbones and his jaw are trying to escape his body. And he ends up sort of looking like... I think he's actually been described as having a face like a bag of protractors. <laughs> which, which I quite like, because I was always a fan of protractors, but, you know. Um, and I think this, this awkwardness that... The 11th Doctor has actually works as a really nice counterpoint to the fact that Doctor Who is now effectively 
It's a show about two married couples, in a sense. It's a show about Amy and Rory and about Doctor and the River. And, and with the way that he's portrayed um, as so conspicuously alien, it kind of it stops it from, from becoming sort of an interstellar version of Everyone Loves Raymond. You, it's <laughs> completely removed from that human element um, because he's so alien and so, so um, at, loss, at a loss when it comes to human mores and manners. Uh, now, I know there are a lot of people that sort of criticise this era of the Doctor because they think it's too adult, that it's uh, abandoned its traditional fan, fan base and that between sort of the convoluted, time-shifted plotting and the emphasis on the Doctor's time-cross romance with River, um, that it's too much for kids. Uh, for what it's worth, actually, there was some uh, ratings information just released last week which show that uh, this current era of the Doctor has the youngest demographic they have since they've been able to pin it to specific um, age groups, which is basically in the re- since the revival. Matt Smith has a younger audience than David Tennant or Christopher Eccleston. And I also know a lot of people who say that their kids are obsessed with Smith, which uh, goes back... I think it was a, a 1980s um, showrunner of Doctor Who who said the challenge of Doctor Who was to make it simple enough for adults and complicated enough for children <laughs> to sort of keep everyone involved. Um, but I think Eleven has really fantastic chemistry whenever he's on screen with children. You know, obviously there's sort of fish fingers and custard with Amelia Pond, um, and he has, but he has amazing scenes with Elliot in The Hungry Earth from last year's season and when he's, he met Melody or River and he claimed to speak baby, which is really adorable if you don't think about it too much, but if you do, it's just creepy. <laughs> um, and I think there's... Um, there's kind of a there's a vibe about him. He sort of seems like your favourite grandfather. He's keeping secrets with you from the other grown-ups. He's winking at you, and he treats both the children's real problems and their imaginary problems as equally important. Uh, there are some beautiful scenes in Night Terrors just a few weeks ago, where this kid is dealing with uh, quite literally monsters in the cupboard, but also dealing with sort of a less than ideal family situation with a mean landlord, a scary dog, and both of these things are equally as real and equally as important to the 11th Doctor. Um, he, this, this latest incarnation has seemed to sort of meet quite a few children and return to them as adults. And um, one thing I think is kind of interesting is when he meets Amy in the 11th hour and returns years later... You see it, first of all, from his point of view, you know, one moment she's a child and the next moment she's a grown woman, which is both uh, obviously the way the Doctor sees time all the time, but it's also the way that grandparents always talk about their grandchildren. One moment they're four and the next minute they're grown-ups. But you also see it from Amy's point of view where, you know, he's a man that turned up and then disappeared again. So everyone she knows thinks of him as his imaginary friend. It's as if her imaginary friend became real. But that series actually takes it one step further. Her imaginary friend does become real when the Doctor goes into the crack in time and disappears um, because Amy, doc, the Doctor's told Amy that she has the power to make him real again. He, he, uh, that's what happens. And um, I think that's an element of his character, that sort of innate faith in dreams and memories and the imagination, which resonates really nicely all throughout this season. Um, Braceman in the Dalek episode was an android, but he became a human being because he embraced and felt and held on to his human memories. And Amy could have chosen in the, um, in the Dream Lord, Amy's Choice episode, she had the choice to find out which of those realities were real and it was the one that she could place the most faith in. And the gangers in the, the Flesh episodes, 
they actually became the people that they originally created just to replicate because they decided to take, fulfil their roles in life. And we've also been told constantly, both with Amy and the Doctor and Rory, um, that even if things that fall through cracks in space and time cease to exist and they're you know, retrospectively wiped from our existence, at some level they carry on existing if people remember them. Um, I wanted to, also wanted to show you this, uh, this clip from the Doctor telling his story to Amy at... Uh, from the Big Bang from last season. I feel like I need some sort of pointer. <laughs> oh, screwdriver. Anyway, Tom, you'll have a mum and dad. And you won't even remember me. Well, you remember me a little. I'll be a story in your head. That's okay. We're all stories in the end. Just make it a good one, eh? Because it was, you know. It was the best. Yeah, so personally I think that's what children are really responding to in the current Doctor. Um, it's not just that he's sort of funny and silly and walks ridiculously. He does walk ridiculously. <laughs> um, it's that it really does work perfectly on the level of fairy tales and dream logic where imagined worlds are as real as you want to make them. And I feel like this Doctor is, is almost like fairy dust that he can sprinkle on, on particular, you know, imaginary creatures and he can make them real. Um, I, part of me sort of wonders if this is a bit of a nod to, like, the original Doctor, like the Hartnell Doctor, uh, where he was actually a grandfather. But I do think it's sort of worth noting that um, the Davidson Doctor aside... Generally, the doctors have gotten... The actors that have played the doctors have gotten younger as the doctor himself has gotten older. I feel like there's a bit of a, you know, almost like a Benjamin Button-esque quality about it. Hartnell was 70 as an actor, but his, his character was sort of this rebellious teenager joyriding the universe, in a sense. He wanted to go adventuring. Um, and now we have a sort of baby-faced baby Smith playing this ancient being weighted down with this sort of wealth of knowledge and responsibility. Uh, part of it, there's just a, a physical comedy element. I always think, like, Smith sort of wears his body like it's a pair of jeans that isn't quite broken in yet. It's a bit too tight and stiff in all the wrong places. But it's also about the way the Doctor sees his relationship with the world. Um, in the sort of original incarnation of the Doctor, uh, there seemed to be... an fairly ironclad rule that the Doctor couldn't go back within his own timeline or he'd risk creating a paradox. Um, Tennant in particular was, was very fond of sort of threatening of the implosion of the universe all the time. Anyone, anytime anyone suggested sort of changing anything, he'd be like, we can't, or the universe will implode. Um, in the Moffat era, the, the threat of universe implosion has, you know, diminished fairly significantly. Um, and when the universe does implode, it's because, you know, that's the Doctor's own own uh, request. Um, I don't actually feel like this is as great a leap as some people think. In the, there's one episode which I feel like is really key, but it actually happens in the last days of the Tenant Doctor in the Waters from Mars episode. Um, the character takes this massive shift towards hubris and he begins to think of it as both his right and his responsibility to change the future. I don't know if you've all seen the Waters from Mars special. It's when he actively decides... He knows this is apparently a fixed point in time and he, and he sort of goes, no, screw it, I'm going to try and save everyone anyway. Um, doesn't really work, but in terms of a character shift, 
it feels like a logical place for that character to go. He is the only Time Lord left in the universe, so why would he continue to be obeying the rules of a society that no longer exists? I feel like there's this... Um, it's, it's like a small step that Ten takes that... Uh, I just realised I've written a Spinal Tap reference here that says, turned it up to 11, uh, completely <laughs> unintentionally. Um, so... <clears throat> so, as I was saying, uh, the current Doctor kind of skips about in time. Um, I, I wanted to show you a clip which was part of the opener of the season finale, Big Bang, um, from last year, which... I thought it was a really fantastic episode because not only did it contain all the, the Moffat hallmarks of um, dreams, imagination, time-shifting trickery, but it also had extended sequences of people running around in really cramped corridors chased by a Cyberman. It sort of, you know, it hit all the bases. So if you want to... <laughs> Does it work? Is that how it's going to work? <laughs> The Doctor said the universe was huge and ridiculous, and sometimes there were miracles. I could deal with a ridiculous miracle about now. Rory! Listen, she's not dead. Well, she is dead, but it's not the end of the world. Well, it is the end of the world. Actually, it's the end of the universe. Oh, no, come on. Doctor! Doctor! You need to get me out of Pandorica. But you're not in the Pandorica. Yes, I am. Well, I'm not now, but I was back then. Well, back now from your point of view, which is back then from my point of view. Time travel, you can't keep it straight in your head. It's easy to open from the outside. Just point and press. Now go. Oh, I, uh, when you're done, leave my screwdriver in her top pocket. Good luck. What do you mean? Done what? Um, so that shows how, how cavalier the Doctor has become about time travel at this point in his character. Um, actually, I showed you a clip from The Lodger earlier, but there's actually another line in there, which is just towards the end. I don't, if you remember the episode, the reason Craig had a spare room is because uh, his former flatmate and landlord had come into a lot of money f in, through a will from a landlord, from an uncle that he didn't remember <laughs> meeting. And then right at the very end, when the Doctor is reunited with Amy and the TARDIS, he's running around and he just sort of says, actually, it's almost off-screen, it's completely off-hand, and now I've got to go back and change that will. Um, it's not even like a big decision for him anymore. He's just completely cavalier about it. He doesn't... You know, he takes it for granted that it's his job to go back in time and pop things back where they should be, you know, tidy up. I really like this about this Doctor because I feel like the show's about time travel in a in a way it's never really been before. It's not just about where and when you can be. It's actually about the act of travelling through time itself. You know, he has a um, girlfriend, lover, wife, we're still yet to find out the specificities, you know, who can step out of a spaceship one day and knowing that the Doctor, at some point, millions of years in the future or the past and another point in the galaxy, will come and rescue her in response to a message that she hasn't yet left. And, you know, why not? That seems to be a completely, you know, logical reaction to me to the idea of being able to travel in space and time. You know, why can't Van Gogh paint a message to the Doctor knowing that it will reach his hands at the exact same... the exact point that it needs to? 
And, of course, if you were confronted with a locked box and a locked room and had a time machine, of course you'd go back to a point where before you're in it and, you know, put the keys somewhere where you can find it. Uh, you know, he, he's the last Time Lord, as far as he knows, so the laws of time are whatever he decides and he can do whatever he wants. But one of the things I really like about this Doctor is um, he can do whatever he wants and what he really wants to do, it seems to be, to have a really good time. Even, you know, Eccleston had a bit of a sort of leather-clad dispenser of tough love and David Tennant was a bit sad and broody, sensitive, new-age alien, speed-dating the universe. (laughs) But Smith's Doctor is a Doctor who, you know, in the face of complete destruction of everything that ever existed, that ever could exist and his own death, he decides that feathers are cool. <laughs> That's his sort of action at that point in time. Um, now, I feel like this is actually a bit of a, a logical extension of the, you know, the famous Cartmel master plan, which I think Paul is going to talk about a little bit more about, so I won't um, tread on his toes or fantastic beard too much further. Uh, but it does seem to be part of... While there have been many showrunners of the Doctor, it does seem to be part of a direction this character has been taking the whole way along... Um, from a point where he was just a Time Lord to a point where he's now the most central and most important figure in the universe. Um, Now, while I think that Smith is a good doctor, and I hope, if some of you didn't think so before, that I might have been able to convince you, I think there's actually a more important question which they seem to be toying with in the current era, and that's, is Smith's doctor actually a good man? They've been playing with it all season. River specifically always drops in references to being taught to fly the TARDIS by a good man and to killing a good man. Um, And to be honest, I have to say, the fact that I'm doing this mere days before the end of this season is killing me and I'm very aware that everything I have to say now could be completely wrong by Sunday. (laughs) Or is wrong right now. But um, if that's true, I apologise. We've seen the Doctor's rage a lot. We've seen him angry. Um, what I think is kind of interesting about Eleven is that we're constantly told that he's scary, but we haven't actually seen him get all vengeful. It's just been teased to us. In the Big Bang, we see former enemies. You know, every enemy in the universe retreat just, just uh, at the end of a speech. I mean, it's, it's a cracker of a speech, but it's just a speech. And in The Good Man Goes to War, we find out there's this whole civilization which has gone to extraordinary lengths to create a weapon to protect themselves against him. And we found out his former friends and rivals he's able to enlist and some to effectively sentence to death. Um, And there's also the revelation that the word doctor itself has come to mean warrior. So we know that at some point this doctor is to be feared. We haven't really seen yet why that is. Now, it's possible that that's sort of something which won't be fulfilled and might be a flaw in the characterisation, but I choose to believe that we're yet to see something from this Doctor which really blows all the other ones out of the water. Um, This is one last clip I wanted to show you from The God Complex. (laughs) Works on the light.
Forget your faith in me. I took you with me because I was vain. Because I wanted to be adored. Glorious bond. Girl who waited for me. I'm not a hero. I really am just a madman in a box. And it's time we saw each other as we really are. So obviously he uh, he made is everyone, you're a bit teary, aren't you? It's okay. He was making it up because he needed to destroy Amy's faith in him. Um, but that being said, it was probably a little bit too uh, too clever for it to be something he came off with off the cuff. So even while I think this doctor's kind of the silliest and the funniest, I think there's this sort of tension between recklessness, responsibility, and regret that um, I've really enjoyed in the current incarnation, and uh, I really want to know what happens on Sunday. Now, Maddie, um, obviously Matt Smith for you is a quintessential question but also a quintessential answer for all of Doctor Who and he embodies, the actor's role embodies a lot of the Doctor Who questions that we have across all of Doctor Who. Um, but what is it exactly, um, apart from liking what's going on here, is there something in particular that struck you in a particular episode where it was, bang, this is why... Um, I like him. Was it Fish Fingers and Custard? <laughs> um, no, I thought the first few episodes were, you know, really delightful and I think they sort of, you know, they nailed the mix of comedy and drama well but I think it was when they, he did start to be more cavalier with um, travelling within his own timelines. Uh, while I really did like, uh, you know, a lot of the Russell T Davis, uh, Turner and Eccleston episodes... I think actually a lot of the sci-fi elements I, I missed. Um, so that the idea, the idea that the Doctor would just sort of jump back in time and go back and fix something really appealed to me. Um, the idea of having a Doctor that was so constrained that, you know, even at the very least he couldn't sleep in and then try and travel back to when he should have gotten up in the morning. <laughs> the fact that the Doctor wasn't even supposed to do that kind of felt like a really big limitation on the mythology. And I know you need limitations because else as soon as you get into a jam you just be like, can't you time travel back to the beginning when, when all this happened and get yourself out of it? Um, but I, I think that recklessness really appealed to me. That I felt like the, the rule book, book had been thrown out the window so mm -hmm. there was um, an amazing opportunity for different kinds of stories and different kinds of conflicts right. to happen again. And I think, you know, I mean, essentially the, the main enemy of, um, of this incarnation has been time itself, which is something I don't really feel like we've seen all that much of mm. before. So that was probably which, which tipped me over the, what tipped me over the edge. Okay, interesting. Um, well, now we're going to move on to somebody who knows a lot about Doctor Who, uh, Richard Watts. And Richard, you have a very specific Doctor in uh, mind. As people may have noticed, I've brought <laughs> along my figure of uh, the third Doctor. So he's just going to sit there and keep an eye on you all. Um, so from 1970 to 1974, uh, a former 
actor of, and performer of light comedy, John Pertwee became the third Doctor. Um, he was also my Doctor, the first Doctor Whose Adventures I and indeed the rest of my immediate family avidly watched. I'm lucky in having both a father and a mother who love science fiction. Um, I was about four years old, I think, when I first started watching Doctor Who. I had to ask my mum about this recently. Apparently it was a rainy day, staying at grandparents' place, grandfather getting grumpy, why don't they play outside? Um, to stop arguments, mum turned on the TV, Doctor Who came on. Myself, my older sister, my mum, my dad all became completely enthralled, and I have watched Doctor Who ever since. So that's from about 1971, 72 onwards. Um, the Third Doctor remains one of my favourite Doctors to this day, although tonight, for the sake of argument, he is my favourite Doctor and the best Doctor. <laughs> and he is white. For starters, he's a suave and dapper figure, the most well-dressed Doctor ever, a man so stylish and so striking that the First Doctor, clearly feeling outclassed, dismissed him tetchily as a dandy in The Three Doctors. More importantly, beyond just physical appearance, because we know this is a man whose physical appearance changes, it's what's inside that counts. And I'm... I, Sorry. The notion of a good man is something that's going to come up kind of uh, with me, definitely. Callbacks. Callbacks, definitely. Um, but for me, one of the, the quintessential things about The Third Doctor is his brilliance. So, forget your non-technological technology of the Lamistine. This is a doctor who, in his attempts to escape Earth after being banished by the Time Lords, this is a doctor who single-handedly dismantles and then rebuilds the TARDIS. He even gets the console out of the console room <laughs> just into a laboratory or a warehouse somewhere at unit. And during this time, he completely rebuilds the TARDIS in order to escape from the Earth. But clearly, also at this time, he develops a far greater understanding of the way the TARDIS works, of its circuitry, than any other Doctor to date. The proof is that the first two Doctors could never fly the TARDIS anywhere they wanted to go, always ending up in the wrong place. After the third Doctor, Tom Baker starts making precision jumps more and more the Doctors begin to be able to pilot the TARDIS. Clearly, it was because of the third Doctor and his technological brilliance. <laughs> Plus, if you ever wanted to, I don't know, break through a heat barrier or destroy the nesting consciousness at close range, uh, <laughs> the third Doctor is definitely your man. He's also a man of action, whereas the first two Doctors generally kind of inveigled themselves into situations or accidentally got caught up in situations. The third Doctor threw himself headfirst into whether it be the story, the scenario or the fray. This was a man of daring do, despite his age. Um, I mean, let's see, who can forget, for example, the uh, dramatic, uh, almost entire episode-long chase uh, when the third Doctor is chasing the villainous, villainous Lupton in Planet of the Spiders. <laughs> I mean, we have a, a mini helicopter. We have kind of um, a hovercraft chase. It's fantastic. Um, equally, he's incredibly physical and hands-on, uh, fighting Grun, the champion of Peladon, first with spears, then hand-to-hand -hand in The Curse of Peladon. And, of course... The Third Doctor is a master of Venusian Aikido, which is remarkable given that Venusians have five arms and five legs. <laughs> now, something else that's incredibly important about the Third Doctor, and for me is one of is the reason why he is not just my doctor, but the doctor. Gallifrey? 
two hearts, the master. Without the Pertwee era, we would have none of these things. So, um, obviously, we'd met the Time Lords previously in Doctor Who mythology in Patrick Troughton's last story. Uh, but it's not until the third Doctor that we learn the name of the planet that the Time Lords come from. Gallifrey is first named in the 1974 story, The Time Warrior, which also introduces the first feminist companion, the first strong, really strong female contemporised companion. So important for a couple of, uh, of points there. It's also during uh, the, the John Pertwee era of the Third Doctor, in fact, during Pertwee's very first story, Spearhead from Space, that we learn the Doctor has two hearts. This is now an accepted part of Doctor Who canon, but it's not until Pertwee that that is introduced. And, of course, without the Third Doctor, we would not have that magnificent bastard known as Professor Thascales. Uh, sorry, uh, Reverend Magister. Um, um, I'm sorry, the adjudicator, uh, the portrays. Um, um, uh, Harold Saxon, uh, the master. Yes, that's his name. Um, he is the Doctor's Moriarty, the man who is both villain and strangely friend and ally. It's even implied later during the, the, uh, the fifth Doctor's tenure that the master might even be the Doctor's brother. Um, but... The Master is essential to the story of Doctor Who, and it, without the Third Doctor, we would never have met him. And speaking of essential characters in the world of Doctor Who, Jay, can we roll the first clip, please? Oh, good morning, Director. I was about to come and see you. I realise you must be busy particularly since you seem to be engaged in a full-scale military operation with my research centre as its HQ. Yes, I apologise for the inconvenience, When you and your associates descended upon us, not, I might add, at any request of mine, I understood that your purpose was to put an end to the setbacks that have been plaguing us here. That is true, and sir. And what have you achieved? To begin with, Miss Shaw has discovered an abnormally high rate of stress symptoms amongst your staff. There's bound to be a few weak links. What about these power losses? The Doctor has spent most of the night examining the equipment here. Ah, yes, your mysterious Doctor. With his sonic screwdriver. Is he qualified to make such an investigation? The Doctor's qualified to do almost everything. Oh, that's it, then. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with what? With any of it. Cyclotron, remote control mechanisms, all of them functioning perfectly. You can't possibly be sure. My dear man, it's a perfectly simple piece of machinery. Oh, <laughs> Then what is the explanation of these power losses? Magic? Well, the power from your reactor, like the mental state of your staff, has been affected by some outside influence. Indeed. And what do you propose to do about it? It's more a question of what you propose to do about it. Until this influence has been discovered and dealt with, this establishment should be closed down completely. Out of the question. It would mean a tremendous setback to our research program. And to your career. I'm extremely dissatisfied, Brigadier, with your conduct of this investigation and with the behaviour of your uh, associate. I intend to write to the Permanent Undersecretary and demand your recall. That is your privilege, Director, but whilst we are here, perhaps you'll let us carry on with our investigations. idiot. <laughs> Never could stand that man. Well, Brigadier, all set to start playing soldiers, are we? 
Lethbridge Stewart? Yes. <laughs> so while I was thinking about this, I kind of rewatched quite a lot of, uh, of old Pertwee stories, trying to find a quintessential moment or two. Uh, of the third Doctor. And for me, that scene, uh, which is from episode two of Doctor Who and the Silurians, um, set in an experimental nuclear research centre beneath Wenley Moor, is a quintessential moment. Um, yes, because it has the late, great Nicholas Courtney as the Brigadier, uh, who is, again, a pivotal part of Doctor Who mythology uh, and a key element of the third Doctor's stories. Um, uh, but here, in that scene, we see the third Doctor at his best. Yes, I could have shown the third Doctor, I don't know, um, practising Venusian uh, uh, Aikido or being physical, as I referred to earlier, but that scene shows what I see as some of the best qualities of the third Doctor. Yes, he is arrogant, he is alien, he is demanding, he's deeply intelligent. Um, he's just basically single-handedly studied an entire experimental nuclear power station overnight and decided that it's OK. As he said, it, it's simple equipment for him. Um, it also reveals his disdain for pomposity, which I think deeply reflects the reason the, the, the Doctor left Gallifrey in the first place. Um, that kind of pompous nature of Time Lord society is something he deeply rejects, and we see it echoed in that scene there when he's uh, talking to Lawrence, the director, and about the director. It also reveals his barely concealed contempt for the military mind, but simultaneously reveals his friendship with the Brigadier. I love the oppositional nature of their friendship. They come from completely different ways of working, but um, they are nonetheless friends. They respect each other. Um, and the Brigadier, for me, is one of the things that makes the, the Third Doctor so important because without the Third Doctor, we would not have the Unit family. And yes, I know that Lethbridge, Stewart and Unit were introduced during the Second Doctor's tenure, but it was during the Pertwee years that Unit really came into its own with uh, the Brig, with Captain Yates, with Sergeant Benton, who, in retrospect, I've realised was my very first crush. Um, <laughs> uh, also, uh, the, the rarely mentioned but nonetheless strongly present in a couple of episodes, female unit uh, soldier Corporal Bell, who is there a couple of times, doesn't get referenced in the same way that the men do, but she was an ongoing character in a couple of stories. Years later, because of Corporal Bell, perhaps we get direct lineal descendants of characters like Captain Magambo and Brigadier Bambera. Now, just briefly, moving away from the characters and going behind the scenes for a moment... The Third Doctor's era is important on so many levels. The first episode's in colour. Uh, the introduction of the long-running team of Barry Letts, the producer, and Terence Dix, script editor. The decision with Pertwee's very first story in season, season seven to target Doctor Who away from very young children and more towards teenagers and even adults. As a result, Doctor Who became the show that we now know it to be, something that appeals to people across the ages, something that is a little bit more horror-influenced, a little more violent, a little more heavy science fiction. But back to the character of the third Doctor himself. This Doctor, to my mind, developed a trait that, to me, is his most important and most striking characteristic. And can we see the second clip, please? 
Shall I walk back and get some help? No, no. no it's just a minor technical fault. We'll soon put that right. had orders from the ministry. What do you do? No. The government were frightened. They just couldn't take the risk. That's murder. They were intelligent alien beings. A race of them. He's just wiped them out. Again, from uh, the Silurians from episode 7, we see two things there. Already, as I referenced earlier, we have the Doctor's love of gadgets and technology, and that's Bessie, his car, which I've already mentioned. And many people seem to think that the third Doctor's love of gadgets and of technology is his defining trait. But for me, what defines the third Doctor utterly is his humanity, which is ironic given that we know he is an alien. The Third Doctor is a deeply moral man, a man of compassion and wisdom, quick, uh, quick to criticise authority, having little patience with bureaucrats, ministers, red tape. Despite his established skills at combat, he avoids violence, except as a last resort, unlike the Seventh Doctor, who uses the uh, Hand of Omega to uh, send... <laughs> so... Spoiler for something that happened in 1982. <laughs> yeah, he did, he did. And I'm going to spoil it. Yeah. Okay. So, the Third Doctor avoids violence. As we've seen time and time again in The Mutants, The Curse of Peladon, Frontier in Space, to name just three stories of Pertwee's amazing era, the Third Doctor was a diplomat who did everything in his power to avoid war. Now, that's my kind of hero. And that's why the Third Doctor is not just my Doctor... He's my favourite Doctor and, I believe, the most quintessential Doctor of them all. Thank you. Now, Richard, it's interesting. All things that you talk about with Pertwee's Doctor are the things that we define Doctor Who has. Non-violent, alien, yet moral, um, interested in gadgets, but more interested in people. Um, 
do you feel that perhaps the other doctors down the track are merely replicating this particular doctor? Not replicating, but in the same way that Matt Smith's doctor very clearly references David Troughton, uh, uh, Patrick Troughton's doctor. Um, uh, I think that what we see with the third doctor are story tropes that are so strongly established that they are adopted and echoed by screenwriters and by television makers 30 years later. Um, And that is why the third Doctor for me is so important because he takes an already established character um, through uh, two regenerations previously and indeed it's the third Doctor where the term regenerations and uh, and so on becomes uh, crystallised as well. Um, uh, The third Doctor really does crystallise the character in a way that I think had not happened yet with two previous Doctors and established the template, if you will, so strongly that it has echoed down the ages. Now, it's interesting. He does enjoy gadgets, but um, obviously by having him so sharply contrasted with Tom Baker, um, the third Doctor's sense of fun is perhaps outshone by his sense of duty. And I'm wondering, should Doctor Who, above all things, be fun? And if that's the case, then perhaps Pertwee can be taken down a notch or two. Oh, I disagree. Um, I think you'll find uh, the third Doctor has an enormous sense of fun. Um, The Mutants is a good example of that. He's quite flippant. He's childish, uh, refusing to to do what the Time Lords want him to do. Um, There is a a real sense of fun. His relationship with the Brigadier, I think, typifies that. There's a, a wonderful scene in Day of the Daleks, which is being released in Australia in about a week or so, and some of you may have been at the screening that was at uh, the Jam Factory a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's a, the, the Doctor is not petulantly playing with his technology, but is so enjoying tinkering with the TARDIS when the Brigadier comes on and says, there is work to do. He says, not now, I'm busy. Um, he is, there is still very much a, um, not a sense of childishness, but a sense of childlike glee um, at the core of uh, the Third Doctor. Fascinating. Well, I think there's food for thought there, Huvians. Um, and to take us to the next course, we have none other than Paul Verhoeven, who uh, I think Triple J listeners need no introduction to. But for the rest of you, he's a guy who works in the radio who's a giant Doctor Who nerd. Um, <laughs> so without further ado, uh, get ready for the force of nature that is Paul Verhoeven. Wow. Uh, OK. There's a phrase called playing possum, which is where a possum plays possum... Don't laugh at that. <laughs> Basically, it play it, 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 it pretends it's dead. It's, it's an act. It's an act to lull you into a false sense of security. Now, if you take that metaphor and mix it with the raptors in Jurassic Park, you know how they surround that dude and he's like, clever girl, and then they're... <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> That's sort of what the seven doc- Seventh Doctor's like. Because when I was a kid, um, I was quite diminutive. Uh, I like to think I still am a little bit, but I was very small and I didn't really have uh, the ability to, you know... Um, engage in fisticuffs with people. And so the Doctor I grew up watching was the seventh Doctor, who was a short, stupid-looking man with a question mark umbrella, and he wore cream and a Panama hat, and he looked like an idiot, but he killed a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what I've done in lieu of notes is um, prepare the seventh Doctor, who was played by Sylvester McCoy, prepared his CV. Um, It's not actually his CV, it's just my notes. (laughs) Name, the Doctor. Age... Now, this is interesting, and I'd like to briefly mince words with everyone on this front. When the series was rebooted, Russell T. Davies did something very stupid and proclaimed that the age of the Doctor was 900. There's two ways to look at this. 
Actually, there's three. The first is blind rage, if you're a nerd. <laughs> the second uh, is to fall back on what Moffat said recently, and he said, and I quote, the thing I keep banging on about is that he doesn't know what age he is. He's lying. How could he know unless he's marking it on a wall? He could be 8,000 years old. He could be a million. He has no clue. Because in uh, the extended Doctor Who universe, the Doctor's obviously far older than 900. But my theory is that effectively he's like a vain woman or man um, who's reached, you know, middle age and insists every year on proclaiming it's their 50th birthday. <laughs> so it's just a vanity. And he meets new people all the time. They don't know how old he is. He doesn't care how old he is. This is the kind of thing I get really, really upset about. Um, the Seventh Doctor's musical interests. Wagner, Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Lots of dark stuff in here. Um, qualifications. He was the president-elect of Gallifrey, briefly. He's a very good chess player. Um, he changes clothes in accordance with his moral compass, which is something I don't think many other Doctors have done. So as his character got darker and darker, and by darker I mean genocide darker, like he killed a lot of people, he changed into darker clothing. Um, he has an amazing accent. Uh, he is arguably the longest-running Doctor. Um, Arguably? Arguably. Technically, it's uh, him and McGann, neck and neck. Because the series got cancelled uh, in the late 80s and then didn't get picked up again until 1996. And during that time, the Virgin novels were charting his adventures. So technically, he's the... Anyway. Arguably. Yeah. Much like uh, Matt Smith's Doctor, the 11th Doctor, he employs a sort of drunken master technique where he acts a fool, but it's all a facade in order to let people... Because if you're running around like a moron, but all the time you're kind of weaving predetermined circles around your enemies, that's a superb way of ruining your enemies. Um, professional experience. He's the smartest Doctor... I think, in that he laid massive, massive traps. He even screwed his own companions over to get what he wanted done, which is just ice cold. Um, <laughs> the scene you played before, uh, Mads, from where he told Amy not to believe in, yeah. in him, he did exactly the same thing to Ace. In The Curse of Fenric, um, a bad guy was drawing his power from Ace's faith in the Doctor, and so the Doctor called, called her... Um, what did he call her again? An emotional cripple. And he loved her, like, he just, he was willing to do that. He effectively sees uh, enemies and, uh, and friends alike as chess pieces, and he's willing to move them however he has to. Um, now, there is an epic spoiler alert that I'm about to drop on you, so if you're planning on watching Remembrance of the Daleks, either block your ears, I won't mind, because I, I do that all the time. Um, he lets the Daleks defeat him and take from him the Hand of Omega, which is a stellar manipulator. It's a device which can actually forge and reshape stars. So he lets them take it over a protracted battle. Uh, they take it, he lets them gloat a bit, and then when they send it off to destroy Gallifrey, he's actually programmed it to do a, um, do a return course, and it blows Skara up, wiping the entire planet out. So he actually wipes out an entire planet. That moment in the waters of Mars where the Doctor gets all dark and possessive and plans on killing... That, in, that moment is the entire career of the Seventh Doctor. <laughs> he is a genocidal maniac. <laughs> Apart from the spoons. Apart from the spoons! <laughs> It's, it's the possum thing all over Spoons again. Isn't genocide mutually exclusive? Yeah. No. Um, he has the best TARDIS, I think. Because for seasons and seasons, you had the white console room. Apart from that wonderful moment in the fourth Doctor's tenure where they wander into the spare console room, <laughs> which is this gorgeous little mahogany, steampunky kind of, you know, just yep. amazing. Um, but when the telly movie came out and you got to see the death of the seventh Doctor and the regeneration into the eighth, speaking of which I would like to see uh, the eighth turning into the ninth at some point, maybe. Um, the uh, TARDIS turned into this sort of lovely Edwardian library. It had massive pylons and struts and Persian carpets and huge balconies, and it was just absolutely gorgeous. Here's the best companion, uh, Ace, a.k.a. Dorothy McShane, who 
man, her list of achievements is ridiculous. Uh, she had an amazing fashion sense. She invented explosives. Uh, I think it was Nitro 9 was the explosive yeah. she invented. She destroyed Daleks with a baseball bat. <laughs> a baseball bat. That's just art. Um, she took down Cybermen. She left the Doctor at one point and went off on her own to uh, engage in wars. And as the Sarah Jane Chronicles have told us, she now runs a charity called A Charitable Earth, which stands for ACE. <laughs> Acronyms. Um, he's not afraid to get blood on his hands. He's the exact opposite of the Fifth Doctor. Um, whilst I love Peter Davison and I respect him, his Doctor spent half of his time incarcerated or begging for his life. <laughs> uh, whereas the Seventh Doctor, if he was incarcerated, it's because he needed to be incarcerated at that particular point to bone you later on. LAUGHTER uh, he brought back the Sonic Screwdriver, which had been gone when it was destroyed early on in the fifth uh, Doctor's run. I'm a big fan of the Sonic, as you may tell. Uh, <laughs> I think the Sonic is... It's the lightsaber of Doctor Who. It's non-lethal, it's evocative, he can use it in a manner of ways, and provided writers don't lean on it like a crutch, um, it's, it's a very clever plot device. The uh, seventh Doctor brought it back and rarely ever used it. I mean, he preferred to tinker with his hands, but it was there if he needed it, which is something I thought was great. Also, and this is the really juicy part. Imagine if Stephen Moffat, uh, if, if his run of Doctor Who got cancelled at the end of last season. Now, there's obviously lots of stuff that Moffat had planned since the beginning, and you would never get to see it play out. Maybe it would exist in comic book format a la Buffy, or maybe it would be put in novel format. This exact thing happened to Andrew Cartmel, who was the script editor for um, the Sylvester McCoy run. He had this really amazing story planned for the Doctor, and they started planting seeds implying that the Doctor was more than just a regular Time Lord. And when I first saw this, when I was a kid, I, pardon my French, I shit bricks. I was like, <laughs> suddenly he wasn't just a, just a madman in a box, he was something dark, and I, I wanted darkness out of this story when I was a kid. So I, think, I actually have two clips taken from Remembrance of the Daleks, which are the first, like, substantial seeds of this plot. So can we play the first clip? There lived a stellar engineer called Ermigan. Stellar? As in stars? You mean he engineered stars? Ace! Oh, sorry. Go on. It was Omega who created the supernova that was the initial power source for Gallifreyan time travel experiments. He left behind him the basis on which Brasselon founded Time Lord Society. And he left behind the hand of Omega. His hand? What good was that? No, no, not his hand, literally. No, no, it's called that because time lords have an infinite capacity for potential. I've noticed that. <laughs> the Hand of Omega is a mythical name for Omega's remote stellar manipulator, a device used to customise stars with. <laughs> and didn't we have trouble with the prototype? We? They. And the Daleks want it so they can recreate the time travel experiments. But you said that both Dalek factions can already travel in time. Oh, yes, Daleks have got time corridor technology, but it's very crude and nasty. And what they want is the power that time lords have. And they'll get that with the hand of Omega. Or so they think. And you have to try and stop them. No, yes, I want them to have it. Eh? My problem is trying to stop Group Captain Gilmore and his men getting diced in the crossfire. So, all this is... Is a massive deception, yes. Well, Devious... So the Daleks grab the hand of Omega and go, and no one gets hurt. Brilliant. Just one thing. What? I didn't expect two Dalek factions. 
And now I've got to make sure that the wrong ones don't get their grubby little protuberances on it. Shouldn't we take Mike? No, dark hunting is a terminal pastime. So what are we doing? Dark hunting. So there you witnessed not only the terrible soundtrack of the uh, <laughs> of that, uh, Doctor Who, but you also witnessed, first of all, the Doctor lying to Ace when she said, oh, so they just leave, they just take the hand of Omer and go. No, that's not what happens, but you can't tell that to your companion because you need her to act in a specific way, otherwise your terrible plan won't come to fruition. Um, but the line I wanted you to take attention to uh, was where... Uh, he said, didn't we have trouble with the prototype? And she said, we, and he goes, they. Uh. Um, now, the second clip, this scene uh, was actually deleted by one of the bigwigs at the BBC at the time who didn't like the implication that the Doctor was a god. Now, um, because that would offend religious people, apparently. What, one of the notions, uh, one of the parts of Tenet that I really liked was the lonely god, this lonely kind of terrible power who had done something awful, but he was obviously more than just a Time Lord because Time Lords, as we know from the classic series, are typically bureaucrats. So this line, uh, which again, spoiler alert, is if I haven't ruined it for you already, um, because the bad guy turns out to be Davros. Uh, this is before we were all sick of Daleks. Um, <laughs> So he basically is delivering a monologue to Davros, and this deleted line is probably the clearest uh, link to the Cartmel Master Plan. Can we play that? Are you threatening me? If so, it is most unwise. Every time our paths have crossed, I have defeated you. <laughs> you flatter yourself, Doctor. In the end, Oh, Davros, I am far more than just another Time Lord. I'm aware word for word, that's exactly what I just said, but I wanted him to say it. <laughs> uh, now, that obviously never came to fruition, unfortunately. But uh, the novel Lung Barrow, which concluded the, uh, the Virgin New Adventure series um, and basically wrapped up the events of the Seventh Doctor just before the, uh, t- the telly movie in which he turned into the Eighth Doctor, revealed... The amazing truth, the Moffat-esque truth that they were hoping to get to, and that is that um, in the beginning there were three Time Lords, uh, Rassilon, Omega, and the Other. Now, the Other wasn't written down in history books because history is written by the winners. Uh, the Omega and Rassilon and the Other created this thing called the Hand of Omega, and then Rassilon and Omega basically decided to do a military coup and have the Other executed. And the Other, rather than accept that, walked into a loom. Now, a loom is like a genetic kind of loom which uh, gives birth to Time Lords and they're born into these ancestral houses and, you know, as kids or whatever. So the other says, F you, steps into the loom, is burned to a crisp, and the argument that Cartmel wanted to instill uh, in the show is that every incarnation of the Doctor was regaining memories because he was a reincarnation of the other. So by the time he got to the Seventh Doctor, he was remembering that he was, in fact basically the founder of Time Lord Society. Not just the founder, but the founder who was screwed over. So he's got this kind of terrible, dark hatred for the Time Lords. Um, now, they haven't ever directly uh, discounted this, um, which is one of the things I love about who mythology. It leaves room for interpretation. It's very open. But I'd like to think that every single dark moment, and the dark moments are my favourite, every, <laughs> every single dark moment that the Doctor has had, especially 10 and 11, and, uh, incidentally, the Time War, the whole notion of the Time War, is very much Seven, because, uh, I mean, I can see why people would be offended by the Seventh Doctor, but uh, I think he's fantastic. Now, I wanted to close with a clip of him um, reading 
the Pandorica speech, Matt Smith's Pandorica speech um, from Stonehenge, which he read, uh, did a cold reading of at DragonCon recently. Someone just handed him the script and he did a reading of that. So I think that's how I'm going to close. So can we play that? So here we are. I'm going to try this. Uh, no ideas. This is your idea. Probably was. But anyway. Incidentally, I should have cut that like 30 seconds before. Um, <laughs> there was actually one more uh, thing. I was lucky enough to talk to Sylvester McCoy. Um, I called him at his hotel room. Unfortunately, the people who organised the interview for me didn't like me, and so they didn't tell him that I was calling, and he's an old man, and he was obviously quite tired, and it was 7am in the morning. So I called Sylvester McCoy, and uh, you know in Time Crash, where Tennant gives that wonderful speech to uh, Davison saying, you are my doctor. You know, all that running about, the celery and blah, blah, blah. I altered that speech for, for McCoy. And I delivered it to him with the most heartbreaking earnestness I could muster. And there was about 10 seconds of silence. And then he said, sorry, the phone cut out. I didn't hear any of that. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I cried and I cried. <laughs> and then it turns out the uh, recording didn't work, so none of it was on, uh, none of it was on audio. I got, I got to tell you, so. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and that's it. That's why I think he's the best doctor. Oh, really? Well, that's a heartbreaking end to a <laughs> fascinating saga. And it's interesting, given the acceleration towards darkness in the final uh, iterations of Doctor Who. Mm. And I think it's an interesting point that we could probably cover right now, is that the team of Moffat and Davies would have obviously have gone over the final years of Doctor Who with a fine tooth comb. And... Obviously, there are scenes in the final, um, in the latest iteration, Doctor Who, where this particular idea of Doctor Who being a world-smashing genocidal maniac is something to be feared, which is something that people who are new to Doctor Who are kind of puzzled by, um, whereas devotees of Sylvester McCoy will go, Ugh. <laughs> um, I'm just wondering, is the Doctor more interesting because he's a genocidal maniac or is it because it's something that genocidal maniacs can latch on to and say, yes, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more that each Doctor explores what uh, a time-travelling, effectively immortal, is capable of and each Doctor explores those you know, in different ways. The first one is a cranky shit. It's a lot like the development of Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. At the start, he's an ass hat. <laughs> and in the middle, he's suicidal. And at the end, he's all, woo! And then he keeps up with Annie McDowell, which I hope never happens to the Doctor. And there's a brief jazz piano <laughs> yeah, phase in there. Yeah, there's there. a little piano bit. Uh, but basically, that was a phase in the Doctor's life at which he was willing to try anything, because obviously he'd seen a lot of loss. And, I mean, it's just the temptation to abuse your power. Is overwhelming. I mean, every doctor abuses their power in different ways, whether it's, you know, Pertwee running circles around unit, uh, or it's Baker having sex with every single cast member he can get in there, or, <laughs> or whether it's Matt Smith, you know, like, flaunting the laws of, of, of causality. I mean, technically speaking, the implications are just as bad. I mean, if it's going to rip a hole in space, it's no worse than wiping out a race of, of Daleks. But, I mean, I always wanted the doctor to abuse his power just a little bit because the characters I like are the ones who are good but not so good. It's the Malcolm Reynolds race here. It's two-thirds good, one-third bad. That's <laughs> the, the way I like my food guys. Now, um, obviously, um, McCoy was your doctor. Um, is there another doctor that you could possibly pit him against in a final duel to the death? <laughs> uh, I, would like to, I would like to see him um, absolutely destroy Davison. Because Davison would be totally. I love. Look, I love Davison. He's a sweet guy and he's a great doctor, but he's just a pussy. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just like to see that that ma that match off. Either that or Matt Smith, because I think they're very similar in, in different ways. I mean, they're very, they're both comic actors who have dark underbellies. Right. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Well, uh, without further ado, it's time to hand you over to the man who possibly knows more about Doctor Who than everybody in this room combined. <laughs> <laughs> which um, is a terrifying prospect of Gall Gallifreyan proportions. But he's also terribly funny and witty and interesting. So without further ado, Adam Richard. Hi. Um, <laughs> I, I am a professional comedian, but I can't make jokes about Doctor Who because I take it so desperately seriously. Um, and, and I, I would like to, before I bring up my favourite Doctor, I would like to bring up, you know, the ones we've left out. Um, we haven't really talked about... Uh, William Hartnell apart from briefly. And, and one, thing, one thing I wanted to point out is, like, we all talk about our favourite Doctors and which Doctor Who is better and who does what, but I think what we're really talking about are the creative teams 
behind the show. Like you mentioned uh, Barry Letts and Terence Dix. You mentioned Andrew Cartmel. You mentioned Stephen Moffat. You mentioned Russell T Davis. And the doctor of the time is the doctor of the creative team. Like it's not the actor. It's because certainly, you know, if you watch the whole Tom Baker run, he plays four different people. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so we're, you know, like in the early days, we were talking about Verity Lambert and uh, David Whittaker taking what was supposed to be, uh, you know, a science and history show and turning it into a weird space thing that kids went, oh, my God, I don't care about the history, more Daleks. And <laughs> then the show was shanghaied by comedy writers from Terry Hancock's show because they had nothing else to do um, but make... Daleks chase around Dracula and Frankenstein. Uh, it's very strange, the late 60s. And then, uh, obviously, the uh, Patrick Troughton years where, you know, the budget was small, but they spent a lot of it on a monster, so everyone had to be locked in one room with the monster outside for six or seven episodes in a row. Um, which was awesome, because it was terrifying. It was a hairy monster or a green monster or a silver monster. Um, they're all good monsters. <laughs> And then, uh, as we've heard about the, uh, the, the John Pertwee era, where it became, you know, an action show, and uh, we also have touched briefly on Peter Davison, which at John Nathan Turner, who was the producer at the time, and Eric Sayward, who was the uh, script editor, John Nathan Turner, I think, thought Doctor Who was... It was on Saturday nights, which therefore meant it was light entertainment. So he basically made Dancing with the Stars in Space. Um, <laughs> because there'd be a different celebrity every week and it was all about who was on the show and it was very brightly lit and it actually did look like Dancing with the Stars for about three years there with, you know, then a giant snake would come. Um, <laughs> it's a very peculiar era in the show's history. And uh, so, yeah, and, and then John Nathan Turner obviously was, um, I think, being pensioned off when Andrew Cartmel took over for those Sylvester McCoy years. Yeah. I think you just sat there and went, yeah, you just do whatever you're doing. I'll hire Hale and Pace. They can be in this one. Because um, it is, like, seriously, if you watch the last, uh, like, almost ten years of Doctor Who, it's guest star after guest star after guest star, and none of them doing terribly much, which kind of the show is like now. Like, the David Tennant era is kind of every week there is some other big-name celebrity playing, you know, a very small role, not doing much. Like, even just last week in the, uh, the Matt Smith one where David Williams is buried in... Rat face makeup, like he's doing the wind in the willows somewhere. <laughs> I mean, like the character, though. He was a cute character. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I think we, you know, we all talk about the, the the creative teams. And during Tom Baker's era, there was Douglas Adams was in charge of the writing at one stage, and it got very <laughs> peculiar. And there were people who would dive through windows because, well, they wouldn't actually dive through windows. There'd be a sound effect, and they'd roll into the room. Uh, <laughs> couldn't afford to break glass at the BBC. Uh, but, uh, yeah, my favourite Doctor was, uh, was Tom Baker. But specifically, the, three, the first three years of his tenure, which was Philip Hinchcliffe and Robert Holmes, and some of the most sublime writing you've ever seen in your life, like just beautiful, evocative writing and some hilarious acting and actually terrifying. Like, it is one of the scariest shows you've ever seen in your life. Those three years of Doctor Who where, you know, you've got things like... Uh, I mean, the first one, Robot, is a little bit clunky. It's King Kong, but he's a robot. And he picks up the lady, and he loves her. Uh, <laughs> Sarah Jane and some terrible special effects and a toy tank. Um, 
And then you've got things like The Robots of Death, which is essentially an Agatha Christie mystery with robots. Everyone's locked in one thing. It's, you know, oh! It's basically ten little Indians with silver people. Uh, you've got The Seeds of Doom, which is uh, Howard Hawks' The Thing from Another World for a couple of episodes. And then it's crazy plant creatures and Eco's gone crazy. That's another thing you didn't bring up, Richard, was how ecologically friendly the third doctor was he was obsessed with ecology like something to this day we're still going what it was the 70s we didn't do anything about it then <laughs> what is wrong with us but yeah like the and the uh, you know it was an absolutely terrifying show and that's what i love about the the 11th doctor and stephen moffat is that it's scary again doctor who for the last two years has been terrifying like that one with the Minotaur in the maze that was a hotel, I kept thinking I was watching a really creepy TV show about The Shining. It's, <laughs> it's scary. And, and, yeah, Doctor Who was terrifying for a long time. Like, you know, there was the face of evil where the Doctor's face would come out at you just as an outline. Scary. There was the Jekyll and Hyde uh, pastiche that was the planet of evil where... Professor Sorensen would drink crystals. Yeah, that's going to always make you feel better. Um, <laughs> and then turn into a scary monster and there was an energy creature and the antimatter people were going to come and get us. Uh, and I remember once as a, my, one of my first memories of watching Doctor Who was, you know that weird thing, and it's happening this weekend and it'll freak you out, uh, where you go for, into daylight savings and... Suddenly, one day, it's night-time at 6 o'clock when yesterday it was daytime at 6 o'clock. And Doctor Who used to be on at 6 o'clock and I was watching The Ark in Space and it was terrifying and the man put his hand out of his pocket, which now I know is green bubble wrap. But then, when I was a child, it was a terrible infection that was going to turn him into a monster. <laughs> and the episode ended and I went and turned the television off and because Daylight Savings had happened, it was dark now. <laughs> when it started, it was daytime, and then the episode ended and it was dark. And I sat in my bedroom for a good 45 minutes at the age of eight, just waiting for someone to come and rescue me because it was dark <laughs> and there were monsters. <laughs> and I think that's something that Stephen Moffat does beautifully in that first episode of Matt Smith, where there's a crack in the wall and it is the most terrifying thing you could ever possibly imagine. A crack in the wall. <laughs> you know, we had like a... My mother had a piece of ceramics that held the door open that was obviously made out of thumbprints, but to me it was an evil prickly monster <laughs> that was going to crawl up the leg of my bed and get me. Uh, so, yeah, and I, I love that. Like, kids love being terrified. I loved being terrified as a kid. Sure, there were nightmares. Sure, there were days I wasn't allowed to watch Doctor Who, like, for a whole week because it was making me cry and be scared. <laughs> But, you know, we, we love to be scared and we love that little adrenaline thrill of, of what's going on in the show. So I think, I don't think it matter who plays the Doctor and the character, I think it's the situations he gets himself into are the best things ever. And it's the only TV show I can watch where I don't sit there going, right, yes, I see what they're doing here and then he's going to come from there. Yeah, I watch a lot of The Ghost Whisperer. Um, <laughs> I like to be reassured. You know, you watch CSI and you go, yeah, 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 and he's the killer, whatever. But you, I never know what's happening in Doctor Who from one minute to the next, and I don't want to know. And I love that thrill ride. It's like an actual roller coaster. But I don't have to leave the house. I'm fat. <laughs> I just went to Movie World. I don't fit into the rides. Um, but yeah, and so my favourite Doctor, and I think the best, is Tom Baker, just for those first three years. Now, 
It's interesting, Adam, you talked about the horror aspect mm. of, of Tom Baker years and how m much fun that is. But it's actually Tom Baker years where there was the first and I think only major push to have Doctor Who banned mm. as a bad influence on, on British It was because children. it was scary, but it was awesome. And now this is one of the interesting things, going back to what we were talking before, about how um, the show is directly aimed at children but also adults and the scarier, more complex it is, the more fun it is for kids and perhaps, uh, ironically so, less interesting it is for adults. But I think the question is, perhaps for all of us, is what, at what point do you grow up or grow out of Doctor Who and <coughs> is that a thing that is possible for a rational human being or is that only... <laughs> for people who have decided, yes, banking is for me, um, <laughs> that you can... I did work in a bank for a year. <laughs> well, I, I rest my case. <laughs> um, but it is, in fact, the people who don't grow up and allow themselves to nurture their inner child that continue to enjoy Doctor Who today and for the very reasons that you enjoyed it as an eight-year-old. I Look, when you, bringing up the, the Mary Whitehouse thing, the Deadly Assassin was the one that was at the centre of all that. And I remember when The Matrix came out, and all my friends were like, oh, my God, you've got to see this film, it's awesome. And I watched it, and I was like, yeah, yeah, it looks good, but what's the big surprise? I go, well, it was all this big thing called The Matrix, and they weren't really... Yes, yes, I'm well across that from when I was 10. Who <laughs> <laughs> went in The Matrix, and he had a big fight with the doctor in the garden and the thing and the reed and the... You know, we, uh, as a kid, you just pick up really complex things and just go, yeah, I'll go with that. And then there's an adult, you're... Happy to. You should all encourage children to watch Doctor Who, even though it's scary. Makes you clever. Children's TV doesn't have to be stupid. I mean, no. I was forced to watch relatively cerebral stuff as a kid, and as a result, I'm not entirely stupid. <laughs> I'm a bit stupid. <laughs> I think it's important to nurture your inner child. You should just. It's like balanced diet. You've got to feed them good stuff. And Doctor Who is good stuff. I think it crosses. Because science fiction is one of those genres that can, like, have so many different television nutrients in it, mm. you know? In, in terms of. To, to directly answer your question of when do you grow out of Doctor Who? Um, no. <laughs> it makes noises. It's kind of like, this is one of the best things I ever bought, and I only bought it about two years ago. So I've got anyway. three of those. <laughs> I've got different ones for different doctors because they can't all go in the same one. So, can like. <laughs> that sound makes me happy. <laughs> and it always will. Um, I start, as I said, I started loving Doctor Who in... It's landed now. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> thank you. Um, I started loving Doctor Who, as I said, in about 71, and I have never stopped. Um, there is something about it that is exciting, enthralling, inspiring because of what happened in the very, very earliest days of Doctor Who during the, the Hartnell era, that the, the makers of the program went, this isn't just a show, one style of show. It is a show that can be everything. It can be, yes, it can be historical one week, then it can be science fiction the next. Then with the Romans, for example, it can be comedy. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and to have all of that uh, in a program that can't be tied down except by the vague kind of definition of genre, that it is a kind of family-oriented science fiction show. I think to have so much freedom is one of the reasons that Doctor Who is such a good show and why we all still love it today. Well, it's interesting. I'm just going to introduce Maddie's concept of the family dynamic in this show because it's interesting. It's the what-if of sci-fi that we all 
love mm. and the possibilities of time travel are endless. But what these new generations of doctors are giving us are this new style of sci-fi, which is what's going on between the characters in a much more meaningful and complex way. Yeah, I think, you know, the interpersonal relationships are, are pretty complicated now. I mean, I, I will... Uh, Paul earlier mentioned that he thought Ace was the best companion. I have to say I'd agree. I think, um, I think what's happening with River now is pretty interesting, but I, don't, I think uh, the doctor-companion relationship hasn't, hasn't always been quite so fascinating. But I have to say I found it interesting that all of you... Um, talked about nurturing your inner child because, quite frankly, my inner child has me bitch-slapped. <laughs> you were talking about, you know, being eight and worried. Last week, after watching the hotel episode, yeah. I, um, I, I'm living alone at the moment, so I had, to Skype I, know I had to Skype friends all night and go to bed at 7 o'clock once it was light <laughs> because there's a lamp and a, and a door hook that looks like a person near my door and I couldn't go near it. And I'm 30. Um, so, you know... That idea of, you know, allowing your inner child, I don't feel like it's a choice. There's times when I'd like to tell that part of my imagination to go to bed and it won't listen to me. <laughs> you know what you said before, Maddie, that I really liked was when you were talking, like, in the context of the show, uh, Moffat's whole thing of, you know, if you tell the story, it'll come true kind of thing. Do you think that's, like, a meta thing for, you know, being obsessed with Doctor Who after it went off air? And then just making it happen again. Yeah. <laughs> if we believe, you know, if we believed yeah. enough, it'd come It'll back. It's like clapping for Tinkerbell. Yeah. <laughs> well, it did though. It did. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. basically, what happened was this. <laughs> now the books kept going, and the books are great. But and something the comic else, book. and the comic books, and the magazine. But something else happened. That's, this is called Big Finish. Now, Big Finish is a uh, radio, like a like a audio play um, company. Now, every month they release a three-odd-hour um, Doctor Who story with all the original actors and characters, and they've got big... My voice broke there. I'm telling you. I'm <laughs> He's so excited. <laughs> um, but basically, now. it picked up the slack where the story left off, so it's been going since... When did, when did Big Finish start? 99. 99, but, um, I mean, they're up to, like, 159 now, the monthly adventures, and then there's the Lost stories where they take plots that weren't actually realised in the, in, the, uh, in the TV series, and there's the Companion Chronicles where they just do ones based around the Companions, avoid the Perry ones. That's just a personal preference. <laughs> um, in fact, in uh, the one with um, uh, Wang Chiang, the talents of Wang Chiang, there are two characters called uh, Jago and Lightfoot who kind of become these lovely kind of Victorian England, like a Sherlock and Watson, mm. but way worse at what they do. Um, and they've got their own little spin-off for Big Finish. And um, whilst I won't advocate any sort of internet piracy... Um, they are very expensive. They're very expensive. But I highly advise listening to them. There's some really great ones out there, like to the point where the really good ones are Moffat-esque, where they plan stuff for years ahead, and it just, it's, it's a really great way to destroy time and relationships. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. He was in a few of them. Benedict he was Cumber in the unit one. Yeah, and Benedict Cumberbatch did some stuff in one kind of recently before Sherlock. So now I think before we open it up to the audience, and we're going to have a bit of a Q and A. So if you've ever had a question that you don't already know the answer to, as a committed Whovian, um, perhaps the panel might be able to help you. I think the question as to whether the TARDIS lands or materialises could perhaps be finally put to rest by this august panel. Um, can one say correctly that the TARDIS lands or does it in fact just inhabit a, poist, a point in space-time that might or might not be on the surface of a planet? 
I've always thought that it lands in the plane, you know, our material plane from the vortex and then it appears to materialise while it's landing. So it does both. I didn't think it ever moved until I saw it chasing a cab. Yeah. <laughs> like that did require a lot of string. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. I'm like, it's just, I, I guess... That I, really blew it up. That was hard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I would have. That's the only other time I'd seen someone operate a vehicle with string was Mr. Bean. <laughs> but I, I would say I, I think it materialises, you know. Um, given if look if we go back to the very 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 earliest days of Doctor Who, um, it's called the ship all the time. Mm. It's the Doctor's ship um, and uh, ship's birth. So I would say that the the TARDIS lands certainly, um, uh, but and because we also see it as a solid object flying through space numerous times, mm-hmm. uh, webs form around it, for example, and and, uh, and it so, spins around. And it's it... <laughs> um, special effects are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> They've improved. Really. Um, I think it lands. I think it lands. Mm. I'd probably say it lands, but would it be really rude to say I don't really care? <laughs> not at all, not at all. Yeah, but, um, I, I, like they're obviously, you know... Hey, you're the, the one who has to try and get out of here alive. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, obviously I agree in the earliest days of the Doctor, you know, it was always referred to as, as a ship, um, but we have also seen many an episode where they sort of fling open the doors and are like, right, Paris, and then they're in the, you know, the middle of nowhere, which sort of uh, lends itself to the belief that it has materialised at a particular point in space and time, and it's just that Venice isn't where it's supposed to be. It's running a bit late. Um, (laughs) So I think, too, you know, you could definitively sort of lock down an answer, but it would involve, you know, going through a lot of episodes, potentially sort of aligning the Doctor Who universe with concepts of physics which may or may not be entirely coherent with a show about a space-travelling alien. Um... So, yeah, sorry mm. if anyone's sort of deeply invested in that argument, but... All right, well, I think, I think that, that, that can sum it up because ultimately what we are talking about is a, um, a TV show that's run for a long time on many different budgets. And <laughs> perhaps one shouldn't be invested in cardboard that much. <laughs> However, um, we can all agree that nobody likes Colin Baker. Um, oh, no, 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 no. Baker. no. Merely to create a riot, I will say things from time to time. So Colin Baker is... Colin Baker um, got better with age. He just wasn't allowed to be on Trial of the Time Lord, vast improvement. There we go. Um, And again, uh, the big finish stories. When he's actually given a chance to flower as a character, Mm -hmm. I think had uh, he been able to continue on for a a third season, he would have been even better. Because in the uh, Trial of the Time Lord... The antagonism of the character was mellowed a little bit. Yes, he was still cranky and egocentric and whatever, but um, he, he became a much more engaging character. Um, uh, uh, Terror of the Vervoids, for example, I think is a wonderful Colin Baker story. Yeah. Um, and is one, I, if you've never seen a Colin Baker story, it's a great one to start with. And it's got mm. Anna Blackman in it, who is Pussy Galore. Mm. And it has the... We won't talk about what the plants are. Oh, the like. Vervoids, yeah. They look like what they sound like. <laughs> <laughs> um... Now, uh, Paul McGann's Doctor, um, can we dismiss that as an aberrant... No, they've included it in the current series, so it's canon now. Yeah, and his big finished work is absolutely superb. 
Like, his big finish work and Colin's big finish work are the best, so the most neglected doctors are actually the best when you listen to them. Plus, mm. Paul McGann is still very attractive and is aging very well, so mm. I really hope they jam him into the show. <laughs> well, because, obviously, coming up, um, next year's going to be a bit rough for Doctor Who fans, but the 50th anniversary, yeah. um, mm. they have promised that we are going to get, um, not all of them, but um, at least a couple of extras to come back uh, to fulfil all our Doctor Time Lord uh, I, I just, as long as it doesn't turn into you know the twentieth and twenty first anniversaries that seem to go on for years, I think they're still going on now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, without further ado, uh, if you do have a question in the audience, I think we're small enough here to do it with it songs microphones. But, um, but we do have microphones. It's like Oprah. Oh my god! <laughs> um, but um, please address a particular question to a particular panelist if you feel necessary, or if not, um, let's share your thoughts. Um, Whatever you like. Gentleman down the front. Mm. I'm on the front row, so I won't get up. <laughs> Just uh, wondering, while we're on the subject of McGann, are your views on the 96 TV movie? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I watched it again just recently after the, it was the DVD of the special edition was released with all the, the, the really beautiful kind of extras and the, the documentaries uh, and so on. Um, I think uh, the film is flawed, certainly. The central plot is pretty awful. The half-human thing? Just I, don't, I, I don't have a problem with the half-human thing. I have a problem with kind of uh, the, the, the way the time is used and the, 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 the central plot but I think McGann is wonderful as the Doctor right. that yeah. line in which um, and I said it to these guys earlier tonight when he suddenly goes these shoes they fit yeah. perfectly <laughs> that is such a quintessential Doctor moment um, I think it's a tragedy he didn't get to do more but having kind of heard about what the Americans had planned for the show I'm kind of glad that <laughs> it was ended there but also um, to acknowledge just how camp the master had always been yeah. in that line in the film where he like, suddenly turns up in full-time Lord Regalia and goes, I always dress for the occasion. <laughs> um, there are elements of it I really like. And, yes, it plays with canon, kind of the, the notion of the Eye of Harmony being in the TARDIS rather than kind of uh, on, Gallifrey. Uh, on Gallifrey and so on. There are elements that, as fans, we can always quibble over. But I still have a soft spot for the film. Uh, I agree. Like, I, I'm a massive fan of the actor, uh, but structural. I think there's something about the structure of a Doctor Who story which doesn't really seem to suit a movie, as opposed yeah. to you know that sense of always striving, always changing. You know, the fact that um, you know we've talked about incarnations of the Doctor going over 50 years, and how there's always a sense of sure that one story has ended, but there's a little there's a little something which is going to be picked up whether it's sort of the next episode or the next season or four Doctors later, I wonder if there's something about um, that progression of the Doctor's character which doesn't really suit a movie. And also the script's up. <laughs> well, it's certainly the, the, one of the most the enjoyable experiences of Doctor Who is that and you're faced with the terror of the, you know, uh, the ongoing robot, etc. Yeah. Um, and it is the episodic nature of it that um, is part of the joy of it. Um, talking about, you know, the iterations of Doctor Who that might have been um, had the Americans got their hands on it. I'm pretty sure most of, the audience, um, most of the audience would have heard about Russell T Davies' admission that um, could the if the TARDIS could have appeared on the Star Trek, Starship Enterprise, he would have said yes to it. 
Um, was, wasn't he in negotiations? Before, yes. Yeah, before they the cancelled Enterprise. Exactly. I had a weird dream when I was a kid that Captain Kirk and Tom Baker hung out. <laughs> I had that dream too, but it ended badly. <laughs> they were wearing pants. Uh, yeah. Did they dress for the occasion? <laughs> I sense a ripped shirt somewhere. Um, do we have another question? Up the back oh, we've got lots of questions. So, just raise your hand, uh, and eventually somebody will come to you. We need to use the mics because this is being recorded. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh. Uh, do you prefer the new format of one-hour episodes or the older format of half-hour episodes? I do miss the cliffhangers. Yeah. I did love them, but they got stupid. The recap, that like 30 seconds of like verbatim recap yeah. at the start of every episode gets old, especially when you're watching it back to back. But I mean, I love a good eight-parter. It's just so thick. <laughs> but as a kid, if I had missed an episode, having that recap gave me a sense of what I had actually missed in a story. <laughs> um, uh, and yes, admittedly, kind of on the ABC in the 70s and 80s, kind of like I could just wait six months and the story would It'd probably be back pop up again. <laughs> um, I've forgotten how many times I've seen the Carnival of Monsters but <laughs> many, many times. But um, the 45-minute, the 50-minute format isn't that new either. We've got to remember that it kind of in uh, the, the Colin, uh, Baker. Colin Baker mm. stories, they, they mm. experimented with that format as well. Um, the thing that I do really like about the contemporary uh, stories, well, there's many things I like about them, but the, the pace of the storytelling is so much more rapid and as much as I love John Pertwee, um, I can't stand some of the stories that... Like, seven episodes for a story that could be told in three um, is... Can like, yeah, the, 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 the production team at the start, when they went, longer story, seven episodes, that was a mistake, I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I'd agree. One of the things I sort of think is an interesting um, byproduct of the fact that the show's now longer is a lot of the most classic who mock uh, monsters like Daleks and Sidemen don't really seem to thrive in that format because mm. all you can essentially do is run away from them. Um, you know, there's only so many corridors. You know, you can, you can, you can do all right with a corridor in 21 minutes. You know, 44 minutes, starting to feel a bit old. So, um, on one hand, I do think it's sort of sad that they, when they do use classic Who monsters, they need to come up with ever more elaborate plot devices around them or else they effectively have to humanise the Daleks, which they've done a few times. And Pigs in space. Yeah, I won't... Yeah. <laughs> Let's not go there. Uh, yeah. It's, but then, it's too sad. On the other side of it, though, the complexity of the storytelling kind of has expanded to fit the format. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, they, some of those classic monsters have been put to rest for a while, but they've brought in so many others, and, you know, we're seeing this... Um, weird arc at the moment going on which we still have, don't have resolution of, of the silence and the weeping angels you couldn't have done those stories in 22 minutes and um, so if the silence is Mel's I'm going to kill myself <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mel's never shut up so I don't think she's no. anything associated with anything called silence okay. I don't, the only thing I don't like about the 45 minute episodes is because they kind of cram so much in and so much happens that you don't get the a lot of times in the older series you've got time to ruminate on the the morality of something or the the possibility of, of how something would affect the future. And like in the Ganga episode, it took them two episodes to do because they obviously wanted to talk about mm. that, the slave race and the you know what the morality of that would be and how we as a society could let something like that happen. And, yeah, you don't get as much of that in the 45-minute episodes, and I miss that. But, you know, it's on TV. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't complain too much. All right. Um, 
I've been a little surprised that we've gone all the way through the panel without any mention at all of canine. It's interesting <laughs> to everybody's opinion of you know, what's arguably the most unique and oft-recurring of Doctor's companions. Um, can I just first state that, A, not a time board. Um, <laughs> but I, I register your opinion and I fully support it because obviously canine um, is one of the more quintessential icons, including the TARDIS, and... Um, he's the, the guy who played K-9 is also a fascinating uh, part of the entire Doctor Who story. And uh, the episode in which K-9 was found is one of the worst Tom Baker episodes ever. Oh, yeah. And Tom Baker hated that episode. And that's it's a fantastic voyage. Yeah. Yeah, the, I am really conflicted about K-9 because I, uh, I recognise how successful the character was, uh, but I also recognise that it sparked the... the Doctor Who's descent from serious, dark, interesting, fascinating storytelling into let's now make it comedy for the kids. Mm. Um, uh, and it's really unfortunate that um, that, that, that happened just when the, the, the show was so successful and so strong um, that we suddenly get lumbered <coughs> with this comedy dog that was really unfortunate for the performers because they could only really talk to it and they're crouching That's down. <laughs> so it... it um, then means that the camera crew have to shoot a certain way and a certain way only. It restricts the kind of stories that could be told as well because can like trying to drag canine on a string <laughs> kind of like a, through a swamp, for example, not going to work. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really conflicted about the character. I thought canine was used really well, though, in the Sarah Jane adventures. Yeah. Um, uh, a, off kind of closing a, a black hole for a while uh, and then brought back and having the rivalry with Mr Smith, the computer. I think... <laughs> They thought that through and that, and that worked really well. His return with 10 was amazing. You know, and Sarah Jane and 10 yeah, yeah. Uh, and K9, and it was just, he was just stoked. Obviously, David Tennant was stoked to be working with Sarah Jane and K9, and that was really, that was palpable. But I think I'd forgotten as a kid, like, how silly the idea of a robot dog was. And then I saw it because he was cool with it, I was cool with it. But then I went back and watched, they'd always just <laughs> cut the shot as he got to the edge of the TARDIS door. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, I had a weird thing with K9 because, like, I was a kid when he turned up, so I loved him. Yeah. And then I went through puberty, <laughs> and he was still there, and I was like, no, I'm too old for you. <laughs> I'm happy with the rest of the stuff going on here, just not you. And, um, yeah, it became, like, a weird embarrassment thing. Yeah, and then he was gone, so I was okay with it. <laughs> I think, you know, the history of talk, you know, communicative pets in TV isn't a great one. <laughs> Sci-fi pets in particular... I think anybody who saw the original Battlestar Galactica and oh. saw a monkey, a monkey trapped inside a robot dog costume, it's one of the most horrific things on Earth. Could you imagine what that smelled like? Um, and that, remember that midget robot from Buck Rogers? Just, oh. Yes. Oh. Oh. Just used to talk in monosyllable. Bad. Tweaky. I mean, bitty bitty. Um, I think a lot of people still speak um, using that paraphrase to begin with um, and can help you out. But it basically, he'd look like a forerunner for Dexter. Um, <laughs> but I think, you know, um, gaming shows from the 80s uh, notwithstanding, um, there's always been that element of sidekick. And I think perhaps looking at K9 and even taking it to the final level of Star Wars, that there's always that happy droid helping out. Um, as a bit of comic relief. But at the same time, um, Canine took it a little bit further because most robot friends didn't shoot flame out of their face. <laughs> um, 
he was on a level, level playing field with the Daleks. It was like, basically, if there's no stairs, we can do this. Quite yeah. um, literally a level playing yeah. field. <laughs> they used to carry him all the time, which was not as embarrassing oh. as it was in Blake 7. They used to mm. carry Aurac around everywhere. Like, you know, doctor, some kind of Paris Hilton with a little robot dog in his hand. Batteries lasted about three minutes. I know. <laughs> that was only when he was shooting things. Obviously, his laser was very battery intensive. Ask a question of the panel. Yes, I want to know what uh, we've talked about. Favorite doctors. What about favorite companions? Sarah Jane. Oh, there's a that's a profiterole of custard you've just squashed there. <laughs> just and Sarah Jane. That's it. I loved her. In the show Ace, in the audio, Evelyn Smythe, the sixth doctor, oh, was given a sassy old lady man. companion, like a Judy Dench character. And there's something beautiful about having an ancient man who looks young with an old lady who suddenly feels young because she's with this maniac in a box. So, yeah, I've got two favourite companions. Really. I'd probably say Ace. I thought she was, she was pretty special. Interesting. Um, well, you know, I can't go past a um, poorly um, spray-tanned, leather-clad... <laughs> when it comes to companions, um, merely because she she had her own journey, like she was doing her own thing, and she always had her own opinion. Many companions were obviously swallowed up by the doctor's um, aura, but she basically was along for the ride for the most part. But if um, the doctor couldn't solve it, she was basically going to stab it um, pretty <laughs> much straight away. And, yeah. um, and so you know, she was a no nonsense, take no prisoners, um, but also. For whatever reason, those leather outfits uh, managed to survive in any man of weather. Um, so a lot more technically um, sophisticated. But I think the one question um, that has been hinted at in later years of Doctor Who is that perhaps the TARDIS is something a bit more mm. than what we've talked about. Um, and it is obviously a mechanical object, but at the same time, it's a mystical object of feminine basis. And perhaps it is indeed a Time Lord. And I'm not going to say it is. I'm not going to even suggest that it possibly is the case. But at the same time, as a theory, perhaps it's not any incarnation of the Doctor that is the most important thing in all of Doctor Who, but is, in fact, this particular police box that is the most important Time Lord and our favourite Time Lord in all of Doctor Who. I've always seen it as uh, a love story between like the Doctor and the TARDIS and they can't communicate which is why the Doctor's wife was just so <gasps> heartbreaking it's about and amazing. about a man in his car. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time I mean it, it's always been hinted at that the TARDIS had psychic circuits and that they're grown yeah, from a piece too. of stupid coral and then of course um, at one point didn't he give Jack some coral and Jack was like I'm growing a uh, TARDIS. He didn't give Jack coral but Jack had coral on his desk in Torchwood and was gr- and was growing a TARDIS, but that's something you had to read, kind of the yeah. uh, Torchwood magazine or something to, to know, which I did. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and there's also a deleted scene um, at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah, when kind of, kind of like, <laughs> Sorry. The, the ten doctor gives the, the kind of the one-hearted doctor kind of a, a, a piece of coral and says, grow your own TARDIS. Yeah. And, and this is an accelerated universe that'll grow faster here. Yeah, so. it'd be awesome if it was just to screw you and it was just regular coral. <laughs> <laughs> and he's still waiting. It's sitting there, old man, old woman going, damn it! Um, I'm always thought like, like, like a horse. Like, you know, that TARDIS is roam free in the vortex. And the, oh and the Time Lords would go and rein one in. No. And the, the box and the con- console are like a saddle and a bridle. I actually... 
If you'll allow me to, to brag shamelessly for a moment, I uh, I had dinner with Neil Gaiman a year and a half, a couple of years ago. I know. Did you touch him? Which I totally And um, this was before The Doctor's Wife went to air. And I sort of met him and I was kind of like, wouldn't it be funny if I spent the whole dinner like bugging you to tell me what happens in Doctor Who? No, seriously, what happens? <laughs> uh, so he told me about it. And he, uh, it, one thing I thought was kind of interesting, because Moffat does have these really sort of complicated arcs, he's, he sort of said, you know, you pitch various stories and you don't really know the full arc, but Moffat will go like, ignore that element, that's not going to work that's really good, and chuck in these five words somewhere. <laughs> so a lot of the time, the script is that, you know, they don't actually have that great a concept of where the whole arc is heading, but he did know that at some point the TARDIS was going to explode. And originally, even though The Doctor's Wife was um, season four of this... Sorry, not season four, episode four of this season, it was actually slated to be one of the last episodes of last year. So basically the episode after we found out the TARDIS was sort of sentient being by the name of Idris, the episode after that was going to be the episode where we found out the TARDIS had exploded and I think that was part of sort of his inspiration to embody it. He said he was always interested in the mythology that the, you know, the TARDIS was sentient and the TARDIS would take him places that he needed to go as opposed to wanted to go. Um, but it was the idea that the TARDIS would explode and he was kind of like, well, let's not just make this about... Uh, the Doctor potentially being stranded in, you know, Slough or somewhere really boring. Um, let's make it about sort of the loss of his soulmate and his lifelong companion as well as the, the uh, you know, the loss of his way of life. Still, I would like to see the Doctor Who on the set of The Office. That would be <laughs> <laughs> Office supplies. Yeah. Um, it's a Type 40 TARDIS and there's, in some of the books, there's lots of different kinds of TARDISes and there's, I think there's a prototype TARDIS that's actually a person. It's like a person that walks around and you walk into them and you're inside the TARDIS. It's pretty creepy. Um, but at one point, the Eighth Doctor loses his memory and I think the TARDIS is destroyed and they drop him off with no memory in like rural England and let the TARDIS grow alongside him for like 150 years. And when he finally gets back to the point where he's got his memory, the TARDIS has grown up with him because they're like these lovers that can't ever properly communicate. You know? Fascinating. Um, do we have more questions? I'm sure we do, many. Going back to the, uh, the monsters that we talked about earlier, I think, um, personally, uh, the Daleks and the Cybermen have been overkilled for too many series. And uh, what's your opinion of bringing back some of the old black and whites? Uh, we, we had a bit of a touch on it on Gridlock, which wasn't given a, a good go, and that was macro, uh, the Macro Terror uh, we know about. But uh, do you think that uh, some of the old, uh, uh, basically, nemesis, or monsters, should I say, like your Crotons... Uh, those sort of creatures... Just not the quarks. Not the quarks. <laughs> yeah. not the quarks. I would love to see the, the seaweed creatures from Fury of the Deep. They always deeply unsettled me. But yeah. that's because they're only ever in a book because there's like four minutes of footage left. Well, that's well. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see the great intelligence come back and the Yeti. Um, yeah. They are, for me, kind of like quintessential monsters that... Uh, I'd never seen for, for years and years that I only knew about by reading the, the Target novelizations, um, And I, I just think they're, like, such a beautiful idea and particularly the notion of the great intelligence. Um, uh, yeah, I think that'd, that'd 
definitely be a, a winner for me. I think Ice Warriors and as well as uh, Sea Devils, they sort of the coaches should bring should bring him back. And, uh, I think it's just a bit overkill. That's my personal opinion. Okay. And should I say, really, all the doctors are the best guys. They if you are. think about it, yeah. all of them play their part, they portray their role, and that's what I think I should say yeah, in front of all you guys. So. Splendid chap, all of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it's it's interesting point. Uh, the Ice Warriors uh, certainly haven't had a run, which is frankly a is shock. Is that because the suits are ridiculous yeah, they look and yeah. you can't move in them? See, I thought As the opposed to, say, the Daleks. I thought the Silurians yeah. looked really stupid when they rebooted them, but they looked great and they seemed... There's no yeah, reason you couldn't so. reboot the look, you know? Yeah. Make yeah. them less... But as you said, like it's you can't do forty-five minutes of running away, getting caught, escaping. Yeah, you need to sort of change them a bit. But I think you know they've managed to do that successfully to a certain degree with some of them. Um, I think the weird thing is sort of, uh, you know, for some reason the Daleks and the Cybermen have been become the sort of eternal bad guys, and I, I don't think they're ever really conceived that way. But the more you bring them back, the more they are the ones that always have to come back, and no matter what monster you have in a story. You don't feel like the stakes are high enough until a door opens and there's a dialect. So I'm, I'm glad they're sort of putting them to rest. Because mm. there is a really big and complicated mythology there and it would be sad to see some, although not the sea devils, well, I, the crap out of me. I, I, <laughs> I personally think that the, the monsters that we've touched on briefly throughout Doctor Who's history can be extrapolated upon. I mean, you think of all the spiders that Doctor Who has dealt with in some way or another over his years. Um, more planets filled with spider people... Um, the Seeds of Doom. I mean, obviously one giant um, plant creature overtaking a manor house in England, but what would happen... A whole planet. A whole planet. Would be it would be fascinating. I mean, you know, let's, let's, let's explore those kind of things. Yeah. Are there any other um, lesser-known um, Doctor Who villains that you might want to um, see explored? I'd, I'd like to see the Chelonians actually come into the TV show. Yes. They're a, a, a race of... Um, for, for people who haven't read some of the Virgin New Adventures... They're um, uh, essentially a race of warlike uh, science fiction tortoises. Um, uh, they, they're, re- they're fascinating in the books. They've been referenced in uh, the Pandorica Opens, mm. so we, they've now been established as part of canon in the Doctor Who universe. That's always a great moment, isn't uh, it? Yeah, I'd love to see them. And I'd, I'd love to see the Zygons come back. Kind of the Zygons are such a beautifully designed monster. Um, if you haven't seen uh, the Zygon story, it is being released by To Entertain... Uh, I think early next year uh, as part of a possibly a unit boxed set but don't quote me on that but we will get to see them uh, but they're just so beautifully designed Scarrison on the other hand not so much <laughs> the villains I want to see come back and they did briefly uh, are the Time Lords because when the Time Lord Council rocked up with Timothy Dalton I was like what? <laughs> and they're wearing those stupid collars I was like this is brilliant because Time Lords scare the crap out of me <laughs> Nothing scares the crap out of me like corrupt cops or a corrupt bureaucracy, and and for the doctor to be called Evil red tape. Yeah, for the doctor to be called in by like ad, bad admin guys, that's horrifying. <laughs> in fact, in the Deadly Assassin, that's the that's why that plot's so awesome. He gets called back forcibly. They force his TARDIS back into Gallifrey, put him under house arrest, and then lock him into into his own head. But I think. Um, so you basically re- got a fear of being sent to the principal's office on behalf of the Doctor. <laughs> yes, I do. But I think what's working about Doctor Who now is they've shied away from the uh, Daleks, who literally were just deployed by Russell T Davies to the point where my girlfriend, um, who I would introduce to the show, when Daleks first appeared, I was so excited. And Dalek, mm. where Rose is talking to the... I was like... Because Eccleston was so scared by them, and that was justified. They'd been at war with them, and if you grew up with uh, Daleks as a kid, they were just iconic, and they were horrifying, and they embodied all this terrible stuff but then they just got 
deployed whenever uh, there was meant to be some hidden twist. Whereas now the, the, the scary things are like, they're all cerebral. Like uh, they're the fears of a child or their nightmares. Or as of last week, it's a Nymon, which was pretty awesome. Yeah, well, it's basically like the monsters I think Moffat's interested in, the ones that sort of actually have an effect on your own mind. Yeah. Mm. You know, it's the silence. It's, it's the weeping angels, even though... Things in the corner of your eye. Yeah, mm. it's very literally the sort of the monsters hanging around in the corner of your eyes we saw with Prisoner Zero. But, um, yeah, it's sort of... it's. I think he's interested in these kind of ephemeral, indistinct monsters. You're not really too sure so much about them, but it's about them having a particular effect on you and your mind. And I think that is a bit more, um, you know, uh, works a bit better in a longer format than something that you can just either run away from or hit. Well, we can only hope that the silence and the weeping angels don't team up because then we're all... With the I dollars. actually think they will. Yeah. That's my bet. I've got money on that. Literal, just... actual money with someone. <laughs> I need to win. Um, well, I think, um, unfortunately, it looks like we're running a bit short on time. Um, we've actually been talking Doctor Who for two hours, um, which, frankly, doesn't surprise me at all. Um, now, we've come down to Tom Baker, John Pertwee, Sylvester McCoy and Matt Smith as our four favourites. Um, and I, I think, I think the fact <laughs> that obviously they are all elements of the same character and in particular of the world's um, favourite Time Lord and obviously the universe's greatest creation, um, it's hard to separate them. And I, I don't want to be a complete pussy and say, yes, it's the greatest. He's just the same thing all the way through. Um, I can say that because Adam Richard and myself both went with Tom Baker that he's the best. <laughs> but, um, by doing that, I will, of course, uh, inflict grievous bodily harm upon myself. Um, so I think um, it's easy but at the same time correct to say that our favourite Time Lord is the Doctor. And like an elephant, wherever you come into the room and touch that trunk, that toe, that tail, that's the doctor that you might have seen first, but eventually as you step back and as this conversation has proven that no matter where you see him first, that you do look at him as in his entirety, then he becomes something that is much greater than any single actor or team have put together. He is something that lives collectively through all sorts of media but through all sorts of imaginations. And it is very much the fans' involvement that creates something much bigger than just a TV show with crappy sets um, and awesome titles music. So I think, um, I think we can all agree that, yes, the greatest Time Lord is the Doctor, and the reason is because you can talk for, about him for two hours and feel like there's so much that's been unsaid so and so much... So, much. <laughs> um, so without further ado, I'd like to thank... Adam Richard, Paul Verhoeven, Richard Watts and Maddie Palmer for giving us a wonderful evening. <laughs>